Academy episode number four. Bob and Braun both spoke about it earlier. For it to be sellable, it has to be something that isn't driven by you all of the time. But we knew that that was a big part of what we needed to do. We needed to push forward with operating procedures. Everything had to be done a certain way. And and we continued with that effort through the years. So that's pretty much how we really handled it. We wanted to see it grow as a business. Welcome, automotive aftermarketers, to a Remarkable Results Radio Town Hall Academy. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Hey, welcome, aftermarketers, to the Matching Audio Podcast of the Town Hall Academy video on preparing your business for sale. This is Carm Capriato, your host. Now, as you know, we take a single topic each week with an industry panel and broadcast live Fridays at 12 noon Eastern on my webinar platform and on Facebook. You can learn all about connecting at this URL, remarkableresults.biz slash townhall. Now, see the show notes for this Town Hall Academy at remarkableresults.biz slash A004. There you'll find bios on my guests. Hey, I understand that not everyone has the time to sit in front of a video screen or to be on Facebook, and that's the power of podcasting, the digital audio broadcast that is so portable and easy to find. Every Academy video session is on my website's learning page, and now you have the additional resource of having the Town Hall Academy as a podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Spreaker, and more. And if you have my iOS and Android app, you'll find the Academy episodes there also. Now, I guarantee powerful learning nuggets in each episode. See, it's your peers who put on this tutoring and share their ideas, best practices, and passion on what works for them and where they've had their own successes and challenges. The Academy Podcast is another powerful resource of educational content inside the Remarkable Results Radio brand. Here's a cool idea. Schedule a lunch and learn with your team and listener watch an Academy episode together. Now listen to Preparing Your Business for Sale with Bob Greenwood, President and CEO of Automotive Aftermarket E-Learning Center, and Gary Plimmer, former owner of Gary's Automotive in Boise, Idaho. Just a few days before we recorded this episode, Gary sold his business. We also have Ron Haugen, owner of Westside Auto Pros in Des Moines, Iowa, that's working on a succession plan. Now, here we go. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Town Hall Live brings you all these great topics. I think this is about a 10,000, 12,000 mile trek through uh, the internet. You know, you, everyone knows I'm in Buffalo, New York, and uh, Bob Greenwood, raise your hand, Bob Greenwood is in Vancouver. Ron Haugen is in Puerto Mesales, Mexico. And, and let me just top this off. If you just head west from Puerto Mesales, you're going to bump into Cabo. And Gary Plimmer is in Cabo. And let me introduce Bob Greenwood first. Bob's an AAM. Great honor to have uh, Bob. He's president of and CEO of the Automotive Aftermarket E-Learning Center Limited. And he's got over 40 years experience working with independent shops, developing their business to maximize their business net income. Bob writes management articles for ASA's magazine, Auto Inc., as well as developed live business management classes for ASA. He writes monthly magazine articles. Also, you've probably read him in, in Motor Age. Bob and I was an early adopter of the podcast, episode 49. So thank you for coming on way back then. And if you really want to hear Bob Greenwood in his bestest form, episode 49. Now, Gary Plimmer, uh, he just added another title to his name. It was great. When he sent me his bio, it said consultant next to his name. And I, I said, you know, three days ago, he was a he was a shop owner. <laughs> and so Gary is consultant, yeah. former owner of Gary's Automotive in Boise, Idaho. His wife, Jerry Lynn, and Gary sold a business on January 24th. Do the math of this year, just a few days ago, uh, after an eight-year-long succession plan with two of their employees, John and Jared. And I, I find that eight-year thing phenomenally long, Gary, and can't wait to hear about that. They had a successful 2016. Now, I hope everyone is sitting and you're not driving your car as you're listening to this. There was a $2 million revenue from 2016 with a 25% net profit. 
Okay, I just heard someone fall off their seat. Excellent. Well, how do you walk away from that? Anyway, Gary and Jerry Lynn have been uh, an RLO training bottom line impact group members for the last six years. And besides other awards, Gary also won Napa ASE National Technician of the Year for 2013. Gary and I shared a great interview in podcast episode 135. And he and he's in Cabo on vacation. What do you do when you sell your business? You go to Cabo, right? <laughs> and what do you do when you own your business? You 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 hang out in Mexico, right, Ron? Only when it's cold. Meet Ron Hagen uh, up in the top right corner. He owns and operates Westside Auto Pros in Des Moines, Iowa. I guess it would be cold there. They're celebrating their twentieth year in business this year. Having started with one employee, they're now up to a staff of twenty-five. Ron's an ASE master technician and has AAM certifications, and he's also an AMI certified instructor. Ron also provides coaching and consulting for auto shops across the country. He is co-chair of Vision High Tech Training and Expo, which is coming up March 2nd through 5th, 2017, and it's every year. He's president of the Des Moines ASA chapter and wants to be in Puerto Masales, Mexico, whenever he's not in Des Moines. He's embarking on his succession plan as we speak. And that's why he's here. Now, you can hear Ron and me in our own episode 107. And I guess my first question to the gang is, Bob, maybe you can answer this. Would you buy your own business? That's a question, isn't it? First of all, I got a comment, Carmen. said, what are we doing wrong? They're down south and we're back up here. You know? I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pay attention to it. Um, no, buying your own business is a... Uh, it's really an interesting concept because if you start to look at how other accountants, other business investors would look at your business, uh, I believe there's six criteria that uh, an individual should pay attention to on a regular basis to make sure their business is healthy. Um, the first criteria is what we call the current ratio in your business. It's a balance sheet. It's sometimes called the working capital ratio. And what it's doing is it, it tells people are you paying all your bills and meet all your bills on time? Uh, it's a balance sheet item. And a good, healthy business can pay their bills on time when due, which is, which is important. Because I'm not going to buy a business that is always behind in things. That means it's got a cash flow problem. It could have a profitability problem, et cetera. So the first thing I'll look at is what they call that current ratio. The second thing I'm going to look at is the debt to tangible net worth ratio. And what is the debt load of the company that I'm buying to the net worth of the company? And the key word is tangible. So some companies have a factor that was put in there called goodwill. Uh, you kind of take that off the balance sheet and make sure you don't use it. And look at the real debt ratio to net worth. Is it in line? And we don't want that to be more than two to one. We got to look at that kind of stuff. Is there too Bob, much debt? Bob, let me, let me stop you for a minute and ask a question. Um, you're talking about current ratio, debt to tangible net worth, and, and I know you want to talk about some other really key critical measurements. <laughs> Is a typical service professional going to have an accountant that would walk through these and, and recognize that his business is is destined for someone to really want to buy it? You know, as a shop owner, you got to engage the accountant in that and bring it up and that you want to know the accountant's opinion and how does he see it and how does he or she see it. Uh, yes, all accountants can do that with no problem, but you've got to uh, engage in that conversation. The third item I'm looking at is the overall gross profit percent uh, that the company makes now. The difference here is I'm using a management accounting format versus accountants use a cost accounting format. And the difference is, is the accountants will put in the technician wages as a cost of labor and it, putting those kind of things and shop supplies in as a cost of production. I take them right out and put them down as an operating expense. So how does the overall gross profit work out in the company? And I want to see a total gross profit, all commodities, all labor in, coming in at between 70 and 75 percent total gross profit in the shop. Then I know at least what's going through the bays, we're making the right level of money on it. So that gross profit percent is important. And your number excludes labor? No, no, it includes labor. The fourth thing is if the business has accounts receivable and I'm looking at buying the business, taking over the shares, etc., I want to make sure the receivables are in line. And in today's economy, in today's business, because cash is king, I don't want those receivables to be more than 20% 
of the average monthly sales. And I look at the average monthly sales over the last six months. So if I'm averaging $100,000 a month in sales, I want to make sure I have no more than twenty grand on the books at any one given time. Okay, let me stop you for a minute. Ron, do you carry receivables? Um, our business has a very minimal amount of receivables just uh, through uh, a couple of commercial accounts. Um, you know, nothing over 60 days. I mean, I, I've done consulting with uh, some auto repair shops that have had some pretty sizable receivables, uh, many of which I've questioned whether or not they were collectible. But, um, you, you know, in this day and age with, with you know, financing through through the Bosch card or Napa card or, or, or any of the other stuff out there, there's, there's really no reason for an auto repair shop to have a, a, any size of receivables. Gary, how about you? Receivables or not? I, same with us, um, Carm. I think that we really focus on using somebody else's financing besides us. And really, our only receivables are going to be commercial accounts, which we don't have a lot of them. So, yes, people need to pay when they pick up the car. Thank you, Bob. I just wanted to validate what you were talking about with accounts receivable. Uh, now, you're out there seeing a, a wide range of different operators so you're seeing a lot of receivables. Yeah, it concerns me. And, and it is, as Gary and Ron say, it is in the commercial end of it. But they, they, their relationship with their commercial businesses has got to change. And where instead of people getting interest-free loans from you and paying you in 60 to 90 days, uh, your cash is coming in at the right amount. So I look at even setting up two payments a month and on the 15th and the 10th of the month following. So the cash flow is consistent because when you look at a 30-day receivable, it could be basically be 60 days if the sale was made at the first of the month and you're not billing to the end of the month. The cash is king, and in this business, we've got to make sure we control it. The fifth item I'm looking at is the age of payables. Uh, does the shop pay its bills on time to take advantage of discounts for prompt payment? And as you know, in the aftermarket, um, we have a 2% by the 10th. Uh, off on our purchases. And, you know, that equates to a 26% return in compounded interest. Why are we not taking advantage of that? That's just smart business because that goes right to your bottom line. So, you know, payables is very important to make sure we're managing the property. And that's why cash is king. It's, it seems, you know, I was in the distribution side for years and it seems that when someone got in trouble, the supplier was the last one to be paid. And you, you talk about uh, sweating, you know, when we would go home at night, and put our head on the pillow with a receivable problem. It kept us up. Go back to the seventies and eighties and every accountant was saying, work on other people's money, be a smart businessman. Yeah. Not in our industry because we're in the relationship business with our suppliers. <laughs> you know, I've got to yeah, make sure my yeah. supplier is as healthy as I want them to be. Good suppliers are hard to find. So it's important to have that relationship. Yeah. The final thing I'm looking at is retained earnings mm-hmm. growth. And uh, the retained earnings growth on that balance sheet is total net income after taxes, everything in remaining in the business. And I certainly like to focus in on growing the retained earnings of a shop by 20% a year. Um, and, you know, that's good, consistent growth, but that is also top management to be able to achieve that. So those are six main criteria I look at right off the get-go. And that, Thanks, that brings a value to the business when it's healthy. I'm so glad we started out with some metrics, some numbers, and, you know, as many of us were never born to be an accountant. We were really great techs, right, Ron and Gary? And, yes. and then you had, to learn, yep. you had to learn HR and marketing and oh my God, finance. And so you'd, you'd have to go out and get an accountant. He'd sit across from you with this cool balance sheet and you'd say, Oh, sure. Yeah. That looks great. Uh, you think I'm doing okay? Wow. Next. And then you, you know, and then you dreaded the next 30 days when he'd come back with you. And some people never had any financials for a year at a time at the end of the year. So to run a bit, a big and a smart and a growing business that is saleable. These are critical components. So let's talk about some not so fancy metrics. And let me ask the question, why have a succession plan, Ron? Well, a succession plan, I mean, it gives you time to put together a sale, uh, which you're going to need. Because depending on the scale and the size of your business, I mean, if you have a successful business and you're, you're doing a uh, a fair amount in sales. I mean, something that's, you know, the question you asked earlier was, uh, would you buy your own business? And, and if you look at it and say, I'm not sure I'd buy this own business. Well, you better start working on it because nobody else will buy it either. 
And and so the succession plan gives you time to to put something together. You know, Gary, you mentioned that you know, his was eight years. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's your responsibility as as the business owner to help somebody be able to buy your business. And and you know, you look at you know, let's say you have an auto repair business that's worth two million dollars, and someone's going to go to the SBA and borrow money to to buy it. They're going to want two hundred thousand dollars down. They're going to they're going to want well they're going to want four hundred thousand down. They're going to want twenty percent. If somebody has four hundred thousand dollars to put down, they probably wouldn't be buying an auto repair business. So so when I looked at it, you know, similar to what Gary did, I mean he, he did an internal sale. Well, let's say Gary I, and I don't know the numbers, but let's say let's use that as an example. Let's say Gary sold his business for two million dollars, and his guys needed four hundred thousand dollars down. It's Gary's responsibility. To make sure they have that four hundred thousand, it's my responsibility to make sure the person I'm going to sell that business to has the money, the experience, and the training to buy it. That's my that's if I'm going to sell the business, I better make sure that the person that's buying it's qualified and can buy the business. Conceptually, Ron, what you're talking about is 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 how you transfer this to an internal candidate. Correct. Got the it. best sale to make um, is internal. I'm convinced. Of that. I, I would say there there's. There's probably few auto repair shops that are sold externally just because of financing challenges. Um, you know, usually if they are, it's at a fire sale uh, because all of a sudden somebody hasn't planned and they need to unload this thing. They need to get rid of it, whatever the situation. Bob, I got to ask you this question of all the clients that you've had over your 40 years. How many internal versus external have you seen sold? 90% of the ones I've had have been internal, and I'm a big believer in that. You know, one thing I admire about what Gary's done is that it does take time to set up a proper succession plan. I've always talked about four to seven years to do it properly, to maximize the value out of your business. And and Ron's absolutely right. You've got to make sure that your team is ready, they're in place, and, and that all works when it's brought together. But look at the entrepreneurship within your own building and uh, get them involved in the industry and find that right-hand person. But I love internal sales. They know the customer base. They know the processes. They know the supplier. They know that they know the relationships. And uh, it's it's a nice transition. Yes, because I'm financing it, I, I still have data coming to me to stay on top of it. But uh, the fact is, is that it, there isn't going to be one big fat check and say bye-bye now. Those days don't exist in reality. Well, we've got someone who's prime, warm. He's still warm <laughs> after someone's still warm. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that we discovered, and we, we definitely saw two people internally, and we just kind of knew that if we chose these guys to um, be the successors of our business, that they would run it the same way that we would down the road, because that was important to us. I think that we wanted to choose somebody that would hold our name up, do the things the same way, uh, not disappoint our customers. It would be an easy transition. So I think for us, um, when we chose these two people and they decided to do that, we began into a um, just a training program over the years so that, like Ron said, that they would become uh, the people they needed to, to become so that they could handle this financial uh, burden that was coming up. So you and Jerry Lynn sat out a bunch of years ago and said, listen, we're not getting any younger and we need to do this. So you went for help. You, you, you worked on this. You approached your people. They approached you. Take us back. We did. I, I think I always set my goal that I would love to retire by the time I turned 60. And that's what I had just turned. But yes, we, we decided that we went, we built a new shop. We really had a lot of uh, good opportunities to grow, and then we just knew that there was going to be a day that we would like to retire, kind of turn that over to somebody else, give somebody else the opportunity to, you know, have the things that we were able to do and have the things we were able to have. So I think, yes, when we we found these guys, we we talked to them about it, and we really believed that they um, – um, could do what we needed them to do, and we made that decision back then. I think one of the probably the biggest benefits, even if we didn't sell the business to them, is as we we brought them up um, that they from the very beginning acted like owners, and which was a huge benefit to me because 
if you decided you wanted to go on vacation, you wanted to take some time away, or even if you were just in your office and you weren't in the in the thick of things, that these guys were going, this is going to be my baby one day, and I'm going to treat it like it is, and they would do the right things. One thing I wanted to mention at the very beginning of the whole thing, we um, we actually signed up for to have these guys go to the Dave Ramsey um, Financial Peace University. We wanted them to go with their wives so they could just become better financial people. And it was really amazing because we had everybody in our shop. They're kind of like, hey, we want to go too. We want to be better with our money. So we ended up sending just about everybody in our shop and their wives to the training. But we continue that training with John and Jared were the people that bought the business. But we continued different facets of training through the years to just get them in alignment with where we wanted them to go. So I think I, I think it was a, a big part of what we did. Gary, when you made the decision, we're going to do this, did you treat your business differently as you were building this plan? Well, I think we knew that we needed to, we needed to have a business and not a shop. You know, a shop is going to be Gary needs to run everything. And we really didn't want that. We really wanted to be Gary's Automotive instead and be a business that didn't need us. We knew that that it was an important component. Um, you guys spoke about it, Bob and Ron both spoke about it earlier for it to be sellable. It has to be something that isn't driven by you all of the time. So I think we started to look at all the different operating procedures. Uh, we're, we're, uh, RLO training bottom line impact group members and they were really big. And matter of fact, I could tell you that I've got a whole lot of uh, standard operating procedures that I, um, that Ron passed on to me earlier on. We were in the same group together. We were composite partners together. But we knew that that was a big part of what we needed to do. We needed to push forward with operating procedures. Everything had to be done a certain way, and and we continued with that effort through the years. So that's pretty much how we really handled it. We wanted to see it grow as a business. As a side note to what you're all saying, Michael Gerber, who wrote the E-Myth back in the 80s, and we've covered it so many times on the show, done actually a whole entire episode on the E-Myth, recently wrote a brand new book. I think it was in November of 2016 it came out. It's called Beyond the E-Myth. When I got it, I opened it up. Uh, I just consumed the first 20 pages uh, because I wanted to get an essence of the book. And here's the message in the book. Start your business, run your business as if you're going to sell your business. And and, and that really, to me, was an incredibly mm-hmm. prof- I mean, this could become even bigger than the E-Myth because when you guys lived your hobby for all those years and you, you know, you wrenched and you had to become better businessmen and then you went and get help. If you had thought that on day one, uh, you would probably be 40 and retired now, Gary. Probably true. Gary, you bring up some neat neat points, and Ron's mentioned it too, is that the first thing is that you really have to have a learning culture in your business today right throughout the entire shop. And if the staff don't want to learn, then they're going to have to be replaced because the complexity of running this business is enormous. And secondly, as Gary was pointing out, you've got to make yourself replaceable, not irreplaceable. And too many business owners want to be the kingpin and they don't bring their staff forward in front of their clientele. They've got to get to know your your clientele. They've got to get to know your staff. Uh, you are replaceable if you're going to sell your business. And Gary, I commend you. You've done a good job at that. Well done. A great point, uh, everyone. Uh, Ron and I think you are a great example now because of the time you're spending in Mexico in the winter. Your business <laughs> runs without you. It's not. It's you are a very big piece of your business, but you don't. It's not designed that you have to be there. Correct. Correct. The the, the work that I do within my business, I can do from anywhere in the world. All I need is an internet connection. I've got to share a story for, with you. So. Ron, of course, we were both in group two together, and he would go down on his excursions in the beginning of the of the winter, and, and then he'd send us emails to group two and say, hey, guys, I'm down here in 
Porter Morales again. We're kind of like, oh boy, here we go. And then he'd start sending pictures and all the things. And we were all jealous. Good job, Ron. We're glad you could do that at an early stage. Thank you. Thank you. It was a fluke how I ended up being able to do that, but uh, it's worked out. Uh, Ron, what do lenders look like? I mean, I know you're really heavy into coming up with a design and a plan for you. And uh, we spent some great time this week discussing where you're at. Can you share whatever level sure. you'd love to share? Sure. Thanks. Sure. So, so, so the way I approach this is, is um, I, I got together a team. I, I sat down with my accountant. I sat down with uh, my attorney. Uh, and then I went and uh, talked to a banker. And, and I also, uh, I've got a customer that's a business broker. And, and I went to him and I said, you're not going to list and sell this business but I want to pay you for your time so I know what people are looking for. We can get everybody on the same page. And he was fine with that. So what, uh, in my case, I mean, my, my goal is to, uh, you know, help the successor attain an SBA loan and, and so I can get the check and walk away. Ultimately, what's oftentimes confusing is, you know, the, the business broker was, was very instrumental in, in showing me how, they put a value on a business and what the SBA looks at because, because as he told me, he said 80% of the businesses that I've sold, we go through the SBA. And one of the first pieces of advice he gave me is he said, go with a bank. If you can find a local bank that is an SBA preferred lender, you'll be farther ahead because the, the, an SBA preferred lender does the underwriting in house and they're local. So they know you, they know the business, they, they know the reputation and, and, and that means something. What they're looking for is, is basically three things. Down payment, have you got skin in the game? Number two, cash flow. Is this business in a position and does it have a history of being able to pay back the money we're going to lend them? And then the third thing is relevant experience. So if you're going to sell it to a guy that retired from a manufacturing facility that, that has always tinkered on cars throughout his life, there's not a lot of relevant experience there. But if you're going to sell it to the guy or a couple of guys that have been running the place for the last five, six, seven, eight years, bam, we got relevant experience. So if we have relevant experience, the business has cash flow so it can financially pay back the financing, and there's down payment there, there's skin in the game, slam dunk, it's going to happen. As shop owners that haven't looked into this, we, we get all hung up in like, hey, I've got the latest and greatest in a hunter alignment machine with the Kung Fu grip and all this other stuff. None of that matters. They don't care. They're not looking at assets. Yeah. They're looking at cash flow. That's right. And I think one of the, the, the fallacies that I've known forever is, you, you you sit back and you go, this is all mine. I wonder what I can get for it. And it's the completely different mindset. Yeah, not much. I mean, yeah, I mean, depreciated assets are worth right by oh, yeah. nothing. nothing. And, and, and you're in, who, who is it that not mentioned? Much. If you go out and buy all this really cool equipment, it's not going to make your business any more value. It makes it worth less. Let's say you're going to sell your business in three years and you went out and bought all this new equipment, the latest and greatest. You've got debt service on that equipment. Yep. That's eating into your cash flow. You just devalued your business. And now you set yourself up on a tax problem because you probably section 179 all that equipment the first year or two that you bought it. And now you have to recapture. Recapture. Yep. And, and, and so now you put yourself in a tax problem. I mean, right. don't dump, don't sell your business with a bunch of junk that doesn't work. But, you know, if you've got stuff that needs upgraded, do it now if you're going to sell it five years from now. Don't do it the year before you're you're going to close the sale because you're going to make the business worth less money. Ron, I was going to say we just we just experienced that because our our intention was originally to have a partial asset sale. Of course, we were desirous to have a stock sale and 100 percent stock sale is going to be the best thing for the buyer. But the asset sale. If you have a lot of depreciated assets, and we didn't know that when we got down to the end of the road, they said, well, gosh, you're going to have to recapture all of these, um, all this depreciation. We're going, what does that mean? Well, everything that you depreciated off all, over all these years has an accrued somewhere, and now you have to pay taxes on it. And we're like, 
what? I didn't realize that's the way it worked, and that was the way it worked. We were really blessed because we had assets, but you're absolutely right, Ron. They didn't even look at them. They didn't even care. They're just kind of like, well, what's the cash flow of the business? And so for us, we ended up going with 100% stock sale, uh, which did go through, and it did go through on SBA, so it is doable. But cash flow is king. You have to. Oftentimes, the the buyer is going to want some assets in there because they're going to want to get some Section 179 their first year or two that they're in business, which will help them out from a tax standpoint. But yeah, there's there's got to be a happy medium, and and you know as you as you saw, Gary, I mean there there's no free lunch. You you loved it in those tax years when you were when you were depreciating and and taking it as a deduction, but yeah, it does come around exactly. Ron, you and I, exactly. you and I spoke about transferring a certain level of ownership to the, your potential um, buyers, if you will. And Gary, did you? And, and of course, you also talked about SBA. Gary did with SBA. Gary, did your the, the, your two uh, guys that you sold the business to? Did they ended up having any kind of stake in it on on day one here? Well, what we did is we opted to go with a bonus type program so that we bonus them a certain amount of money at the end of each year. And we put it into an account that was only accessible by the both of us, you know, both our signatures. And we had them pay taxes on it. That was their golden handcuff, so to speak, so that every year we continued to bonus and that's why we picked that eight-year period that we could afford to bonus this much money, this much money, this much money every year until we got to the number that was a targeted uh, number for them. But at the same time, we asked them, we need you to save up personally that same amount of money so that when we got to the end of the road, we had that 20% that Ron was sharing earlier that you do need um, to purchase the business. So via that 20%, through those kind of savings, that's how we got there. I think that we had an agreement with them that if for any reason you left the company um, before the, the the sale of the business, that you would leave all that money there and we would bring in someone else to take over that role. And so that was the thing that that was their skin in the game. They knew that that, that was something that they had, but they could lose. In your agreement, uh, did are you requiring any kind of formal coaching or training to continue? Um, we did right out, have a buy-sell agreement written up at the very beginning. We, along with uh, Ron, we had sat down with our bank people, a CPA, a financial planner, uh, a banker. You know, we wanted all the details, and we plugged in the need for saving the down payment, uh, the need for training, um, and the need for them to do the right things as far as the company was concerned so that they can stay employed. So I think all of those things were important over that run. Ron, I believe your strategy is not a partnership, but Gary's, yours was. Am I right? It was, You're you're talking about a single individual, Ron? Yes, yes. And a little different uh, than Gary's approach is, is uh, instead of setting money aside to use as a down payment, the, the beauty about the SBA is the, the SBA will consider ownership in the company as a down payment. So, so if an individual needs 20% down and they own 20% of the business, they get, they, they've got it. They've already got their, their down payment. And, and so the, the plan that I'm putting together, instead of bonusing money, is going to bonus percentage of ownership over, over a period of time. So, so let's say it's 5% a year for five years. At the end of five years, he owns 25% of the company. Now he's got his down payment. One of the cool things about doing it that way is as the business grows and the value of the business grows, he always has the right amount of down payment because it's a percentage. Let's yeah. say we look at it today and say, okay, you're going to need $200,000 down. And five years from now, the, the business takes off. We add, we add a revenue stream or it's just, it's just worth a whole bunch more money. We could arrive at the station and the point in time to buy it 
he's got 200,000, but we really need 350, and we're short. A percentage, it's always there. He's always going to have the right amount. Shares, that's a great idea. Uh, back to the point that I was bringing up about partnerships and or single. Gary, you did partnerships. Were you sure that they have a buy-sell amongst them? You know how sometimes partnerships don't necessarily work out. Yes, we've certainly been concerned about that over time. Uh, we tried to develop things that they would do. Part of their training is that they met. Actually, on Saturday morning, they, these two guys would get there on Saturday morning and build a business plan together. And they'd go through bus, bus, different facets of training together just in an effort to, you know, that they could work together closely on the things that were coming up. Um, I think that's um, uh, kind of a big deal. Matter of fact, the, the loan companies that they use via the uh, SBOA back loan wanted them to make up what they call a divorce agreement. So what happens if they, you know, there was a problem with the partnership and they had to go their different ways? How would they handle that sort of thing? So I, I certainly there's some risk there when you have two individuals like that. So, and, you know, I wanted to go back to what Ron had said about um, the value of the business changing in your down payment. That happened to us, Ron. The business doubled in value over what we guessed it would be. We even projected it what we thought was going to be high, what it would sell for. But then it doubled by the time that we actually got there down the road, which is a great problem, except for the down payment. So we had a point in time that we had to kind of, you know, step back and punt because we've got to change a few things because the down payment's a little higher and some other things need to happen. So it's something to certainly to think about um, that down payment and what, what the current price well, of that Gary, business uh, is. Gary, thank you for that. And, and you had mentioned nicely uh, to me the other day you said yeah i i i kind of have an idea what the multiple is you know what people have to you know would be looking to pay for a business because no matter if they're internal or external you still need to get your fair value for your business that you've you've grown uh just because they worked for you they you were they were going to get a free business share us a right. little bit of that bottom line noi multiple thing well i, I think certainly our discussions that started at the very beginning um, that was with our CPA, with a financial advisor, with people that were in the market, what that price would be, and later with our uh, bottom line impact group, that we came up with the multiplier of um, three times the bottom line, the, what we call BOC, before owner's compensation. And as you calculated that number out, we went with, so the, the three years prior to the sale, you just take the net operating income for those three years, add them together, that's the price of the sale. So that's what we always had kind of mm -hmm. figured. And we had people that said that it should be higher than that. Maybe it should be four or five times the price of the net operating income, which would be great. But what was interesting um, for us as we had to have a business valuation done just recently, it was done in December, and what it turned out to be was 3.5. Uh, so it's kind of like doing your, you know, appraisal on a home that came in at 3.5, which was a number that were kind of going great. We felt like we left a little on the table, but I, I think our number that we picked to be 3.5 or three times the net operating income is good. If you could do 3.5, I think obviously that's what the SBA people Got came it. up with. Certainly in that range. So many other industries are so much higher than that. Mm -hmm. And in maybe our industry with great operators being coached by all these great coaches in our industry will grow to four and five and six someday. Now, Bob, what do you say? You know, the, it's interesting listening to Gary is that uh, basically you mentioned the words before owner's compensation. And that's where the multiples can be five to five and a half because you're looking at the net after tax, after owner's compensation, but owner's compensation has to be at a professional wage level. And when you do that and factor that in, now the new owner can take out a professional wage. The cash flow is still there to pay back the loan, um, and it's after tax. This is where you get into the various multiples, and I agree with your three, three and a half based on how you're looking at it before owner's compensation. But then if you're in factoring in an owner's compensation, you get as high as five.
written SOPs. You guys, you know, let's see, Ron sent to Gary his SOPs with the caveat that you better change them, right, Ron? You know, if they're if they're not your own, you're not going to implement them. You're right. We talked about this last week, Carm. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. yeah I, I don't have a problem sharing SOPs, but but it's to share the outline uh, because every business is different. And, and if you if you if you were to, if there was a company that sold you a set of automotive repair shop SOPs, you would buy them. They would sit in a three ring binder on a shelf and nobody would do anything about them. But and, and I'm sure that that uh, Gary modified them. I'm 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 pretty sure that I've modified some of Gary's and put them within my business. But but yeah, I mean, it gives you a starting point. Imagine having a business without a set of SOPs and think that you're going to sell it. You're selling chaos. You're selling a business that has ADD, right? You're selling assets. And yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. You're not selling anything that has a multiplier or, if you will, the blue sky value because it it, it just doesn't run and uh, so a message that I think is coming out of here about great financial planning is that the SOPs will allow an owner to not be the centerpiece, the, the hub of that wheel. And Gary, when you had to pull yourself out of that centerpiece, did Jerry Lynn have to pull you kicking and screaming or did you realize that it was never going to happen unless you did that? Certainly, I'm a guy that kind of likes to be involved in a lot of things. I mean, for a lot of us, your shop is your baby, and you built it from scratch, and you want to see it do well, and you're just not sure everybody can do it as well as you have done it and do it the right way without having hiccups. And so there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That was very difficult to do. You know, it it makes me think, though, at the same time, uh, standard operating procedures for everything you do also opens the door for multiple businesses. I can't imagine there's too many people that are going to have a multiple, you know, have a second location or a third location that could do that without having standard operating procedures. I mean, how could you possibly run three businesses at the same time at different locations? It would be impossible. So I think for those same reasons, we have put a lot of effort into it. I think it's got to be, like Ron said, it's got to be something that's yours. It's got to be accessible to everyone. I don't think there's anything. I, You know, sometimes guys would make kind of fun of me. I would I would write a standard operating procedure, and then I'd pass it to everybody, and I'd put one of the signature initial trees on it so that I can make sure everybody read it, and they, and they put their initials on it, and then it would come back to me, and I'd put it on a on a binder and later it would end up on somebody's desktop so they could see it electronically also. But I, I just wanted them to have some accountability in those SOPs that you did read it. If for some reason that you're veering from the way that we really want to do things, we can pull it all back to, well, remember when we wrote this back on the 12th of January that and, and you read it, um, what part of it did you not understand? So we can get it clarified and maybe we need to issue it out, rewrite it or something so everybody gets it. But I think that was a big part of it to, to have everyone accountable. Um, that, that they're following the SOPs. They've seen them. They're, they're doing, because otherwise it's like Ron said, just sits on the shelf somewhere. Nobody, nobody benefits. Isn't from it, it amazing how many owners are afraid to keep their staff accountable? It's scary. It's it scary. is. It really is. It's an easy thing to do, Bob. It's to, it's easy to just kind of just send something out there and yeah. just expect and stick your head in the sand and, and think everything's going to run yeah, great. Right. Well, um, stuff happens. Yeah. Things change. People change. I want to give a shout out to uh, Bob Ward from Warden LLC. Um, he's in Seattle. And when he heard about this great show, he calls me up because – he does a lot of this stuff and he says, Hey, I just, I'm excited. I'm glad to hear this. I can't wait to hear the replay because he's out teaching a class right now. And he gave me a lot of great pointers to bring up uh, today. And guess what? You've covered them all. So I, I, I'm so happy about that. But one of the thoughts that I had was about family business ownership. And, and I'm not sure, Gary and Ron, if you didn't have family in the business and it doesn't sound like you did or they were off interested in other things, but I want to go to Bob. You know, Bob, I'm sure you would have a much uh, broad level of experience to see succession in a family business. And I know that our listeners are out there that have family. 
is it a, is it a completely different approach or is it very similar? Don't don't assume the family wants to take it over. Your children must have the same passion for the business that you had in order to succeed at it. And this basically statistically, I understand only one third of family businesses trans, transfer successfully in the in the first generation, and only thirteen percent in the second generation. Just don't assume it. Uh, They've got to not be dictated to by the parents. They've got to want it and really want it and be better than what you were. And what happens is that I've seen a lot of parents will hold the children actually back. So now you've got a 32-year-old son that's ready to go, but dad's not ready to let go. And uh, dad won't allow him to start making the changes that have to be done. And uh, that creates tension internally uh, in the family. So... You know, you've got to have that passion there and uh, make sure that uh, you allow them to express things properly. You Go ahead. also want to make sure they're qualified. Just just because it's your son or daughter yeah. Yeah. doesn't mean they have the, the skill set or are qualified to, to operate your business. You're absolutely right, Ron. And that's why, you know, getting them involved at the early stages that they're going to take it over, it could be a good eight to 10 year plan of training, development and learning entrepreneurship and what it's all about and allow them to express their entrepreneurship. Yeah, how many dads just say, hey, wait a minute, he, he's got my DNA, my genes. <laughs> so I'm... that could be the problem. <laughs> you know? There's a level of assumed uh, genetic transfer that many dads make yeah. a bad assumption. And how many have had to go back in five years and say, I got to go back and run my business? <laughs> oh, yeah. Because of just what you said, Bob, it really wasn't planned out. You know, as much as, as, much as we can work with a child and, and watch that child grow and groom in the business, if you don't stop becoming the centerpiece of the business, you'll never know. You've got to, if someone's going to fail, you got to fail while you're there to pick that person up. You got to create that culture of learning, like you said, Bob. And I'm, I'm glad we covered that because I've interviewed a lot of second generation entrepreneurs that are working for dad. And I just did one yesterday to come out in two or three weeks. The dad's old school, great guy, immigrant. Are there family planning um, consultants, Bob, that specifically work on that dynamic, or have you done some? There are there are specific consultants out there that uh, do those kind of dynamic things. I've seen some major businesses transfer into families, and uh, it's it's a planning route and it's a specialty uh, where these consultants can bring it in and realize how to go about it and look at it depending on the dynamics of the family, depending on the qualities of the family, depending on the relationships of the family, and then looking at the business as a business, not the emotional aspect. Ron and Gary, both based on your industry involvement, think about the friends that you have in the industry. Are there many family dynamics out there or are they going to try to attempt to succeed internal, non-family? I think I've seen quite a few family members um, do take over, but I think just like Ron and Bob are both saying that there needs to be some sort of a skin in the game, just like anybody else, whether it's training, a down payment, um, everything that you're held accountable to. If you're an internal person, I think it needs to be exactly the same. Otherwise, that motivation isn't there to uh, push forward like you should. So... I mean, we have several of them in our current group that are second generation, so it, it certainly does happen. And then a good point, too, Gary, is that when you have a family operation and, say, a son and daughter or uh, three children take it over, do they have the maturity and mutual respect amongst each other that one of them is going to be the president? One of them, the buck stops there and has the final decision. Or are they going to bicker? You know, that's maturity level and to have that internal mutual respect in, inside the family. That was a profound statement, Bob. Uh, someone ultimately has to be the decision maker. You know, it, it's just give me a thought that we need to have a almost a family integration or family planning um, town hall on that. Uh, throw that in the back of, of my thought pattern. We'll look at uh, I'm so happy to have. You guys on with me. I always give you a quote of the week. I try to find something that could be relevant to the topic. And here it is. It's from a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And here's the quote. It says, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. 
<laughs> there you go. Okay. So listen, I'm going to give you each one minute. We'll go around. We'll go around the room. With some great advice for our listener. Remember, people are going to be looking at this, you know, for for eons to come. So I'll start up with you, Ron. Start on it now and plan. Uh, your your business is going to sell at some point in time, or it's going to close. But but you're not going to be there forever. It's not going to run forever. And so, so get a plan in place, and, and it's, it's never too soon to start. Thanks. Gary? Uh, along the same lines, I think a, a business succession plan can be a simple way to pass your business at full market value to the people you want and the timeline you choose. And I think if you out there don't, don't have a way, um, don't have a plan made up, now's the time. Uh, we've actually got the plan that we drew up that's on the Napa Auto Care uh, website is the secession plan and uh, kind of has the details on just a possible oh, nice way to go. You shared that. It's work for us. <laughs> I'm living yeah, proof. You know, when when I heard you talk to me, uh, uh, I think it was this past week, you, you, you're just ready to pay it forward and, and, and help people. Good for you. Well, yeah, that's that's the seasonal life that we're in now. We're, it's, we're in the helping stage. Great. You need to be, a, I, I may need a co-host for the show. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Greenwood. You know, one of the issues, too, is, uh, as both of the gentlemen have said, start now and start getting it documented. Surround yourself with the professional people that, to help you put it together and do the due diligence. Don't put this off. Don't procrastinate. Get focused. And when you're doing this, also make sure your will is up to date so that if something did happen, the procedures have started and put in progress. And I find... So many people in our industry have an outdated will, and they're doing things, and they could leave their family in an absolute mess. Um, so I usually go into social media, you know, a few days after we repurpose this video, and I say to people, you got to listen to this thing, and you got to hang in there for the whole the whole episode because there are so many gems, you know, of really positive information along the way. And Bob, you just knocked it out of the park with the will thing. I mean, really, it's it's big and powerful. And thank you very much. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time.